As your interior designer, I'm saying do everything in black. Walls, sofa, carpet, goldfish, everything. Um, can we not have a bit of colour? Maybe one tiny highlight in Battleship Grey. It's your home, so you should be in charge. With Avancard's flexible home improvement loan, you are. You can choose any repayment period that works best for you up to 84 months. That's seven years. Find out more at avancard.ie. Lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. New applications only. Seven-year term applies to minimum loan value of €20,000. Avancard Dock Trading as Avancard is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. As your interior designer, I'm saying do everything in black. Walls, sofa, carpet, goldfish, everything. Um, can we not have a bit of colour? Maybe one tiny highlight in Battleship Grey. It's your home, so you should be in charge. With Avancard's flexible home improvement loan, you are. You can choose any repayment period that works best for you up to 84 months. That's seven years. Find out more at avancard.ie. Lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. New applications only. Seven-year term applies to minimum loan value of €20,000. Avancard Dock Trading as Avancard is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. What's going on, guys? It's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, coming back at you once again with a brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Alright, welcome to the show, guys. I say it every week, I will say it again this week. If you missed last week's episode, you can still catch it on demand. Just head over to Blog Talk Radio, lordspain.net, or wherever it is you may be listening to this podcast, and it should be available on demand, as will all the great shows here on Lords of Pain Radio be available on demand, whether it's Monday's Kingdom of Honor with Zanman, Tuesday's One Nation Radio or Global Revolution, Wednesday's Sports Entertainment is Dead, of course, Thursday's The Perfect Ten Podcast with The Implications, Friday's The Right Side of the Pond, Saturday's All About All Elite Wrestling, or of course Sunday's, which has now seen the return of my predecessor here in the Wednesday slot, Chad, the Doc Matthews, is back at the podcast game because this is the world of wrestling and as we all know, retirement really isn't a thing. Okay, with that said, I have to confess up front that... I kind of got my timings all skew if. I thought that there wouldn't be a period of time between the performance art review of Elimination Chamber, which I did last week, of course, and the alternative pre-show for Fastlane, which I now know is coming up next week. Turns out there was a spare week in between. So I started to sort of rack my brains about what it is I could do. By the way, I it's an unseasonably warm February right now here in the UK. It seems to have played havoc with my sinuses for some reason, so I might be a bit sniffly on this show. Please do bear with me. Um, I was obviously left racking my brains as to what exactly I could do in this spare week, uh, and it just so happened that the perfect topic sort of presented itself during the week. Now, you may remember, long-time listeners of the show, that my closest friend, uh, Ash is his name, appeared on the show shortly before Crown Jewel back in November. He's the biggest Shawn Michaels fan I know, and I wanted to get his thoughts on the return of Shawn Michaels to the ring. We have a silent pact now, by the way, that that never actually really happened, and that Shawn retired in 2010 and stayed retired forever. Which is, of course, as we know, what happened. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I was round, hanging around at his the other, the other weekend, and uh, we decided to watch a bit of wrestling, and it just so happened that the theme of the event that we ended up watching had come on coincidentally come on both of our iTunes during the week. It's an event that means a hell of a lot to the both of us for various reasons, and it's an event that I consider to be the best of its kind. Now, you're not thick, you've read the title of the show, you know, of course, that I am talking about WrestleMania 31, which I consider to be the greatest WrestleMania of all time. And a lot of people will kind of snigger at that, or sneer at that even, and sort of go, what, you mean someone doesn't consider WrestleMania 317 or 19 as one of the best ever? That's Well, you know, they are among the best ever, but to me, 31 is picture perfect. It better than 30, better than 28, yes, better than 17 and 19 and 3 as well. I think WrestleMania 31 is a perfect WrestleMania top to toe. And certainly a perfect WrestleMania when you consider the way in which WrestleMania has changed in recent decades specifically. And this is a contentious opinion, I understand that, a lot of people aren't going to agree with it, so I thought, well, there you go, there's the perfect topic for this spare week that I've got. We're on the road to WrestleMania, of course, once we get all of the fast lane stuff out of the way, we'll be on the home stretch to WrestleMania. Incidentally, the two weeks uh, between uh, Fastlane and the WrestleMania alternative pre-show here on Sports Entertainment is Dead will feature a very special pair of shows uh, where I do a real-time watch-along with 
The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania's 25 and 26 one week, followed by The Undertaker versus Triple H at WrestleMania's 27 and 28 the next week as I explore what I like to call the tetralogy in WrestleMania lore and, and expound to you why it is I think those four matches form such an incredible <laughs> overarching story. But back to the show at hand, WrestleMania 31, greatest of all time. Try to keep an open mind as we delve into this, folks, because I I believe this with a great deal of passion. And granted, a lot of it comes from the fact that I think slightly differently of professional wrestling. And indeed, that sports entertainment is dead will perhaps be more of a prominent factor on this show than it has been for some time. But, I mean, quick thoughts to start with. We've got a lot of, lot to plough through in the next 55, 50 so minutes. Uh, first of all, let's talk about the pre-show here. Now, there's a fatal four-way tag team match for the WWE tag team titles that really, you know, it's kind of a kind of the mess that you would expect. Nothing really to write home about. But the pre-show is still worth checking out because it features what I consider to be the best version of the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal we've yet seen. Now, of course, this is a match that has... Uh, Almost inevitably, some would say, gone downhill fast and turned into something of an afterthought, if not an outright joke. But WrestleMania 31 treated it with a certain degree of reverence, as much as you might get on the kickoff show. Uh, and But nonetheless, as a result of it being on the kickoff show, it gets more time than it perhaps would have got on the main card. Uh, by the way, card design is something WrestleMania 31 gets absolutely, absolutely on point. It gets about 18 minutes, the Andre the Giant battle, uh, Memorial Battle Royal, which you wouldn't get on the main card. And it makes great use of those those 18 minutes. It's, it kind of follows a lot of the tropes. I won't go into too much depth here, because like I say, we've got a lot to go through. But it basically follows a lot of the tropes that you may remember I covered in my exploration of the Royal Rumble match genre some weeks back in January. Uh, including it's got sort of secondary favourites in the form of Ryback. It's got primary favourites like Big Show. It it has individual agendas like like Mizdow that obviously comes into play in the finale. It's got a great cameo from Hideo Itami. There's a lot going on in that match, and I think it's the best version of the battle royal that we've seen so far. With a with a winner that suits the concept, because Big Show wasn't someone you then had to go on and, and sort of do more stuff with. But he was someone that that kind of felt justified as a victor, felt like a a big deal for him to win this. So brilliant Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal kicks us off on on the kickoff show. But let's talk about the main show, because the main show to me, the main card of WrestleMania 31 is a spectacular example of, let's call it passive shared universe, because WWE don't lean into it. They don't seem to actively engage in shared universe storytelling, but there are disparate threads that you could pull together. And indeed, in the build-up to WrestleMania 31, I did what was a, ended up as a very well-received column on Lords of Pain.net, which is still available in my archive. If you if you go to just business on the columns menu and then scroll all the way to the back end of the last page and you'll, you'll see an option to visit the archives, go all the way down to, my, to among my first columns, and you'll find the alternative... I can't remember exactly what it was called now, but it was it was something like the alternative build-up to, to WrestleMania 31 or an alternative view on the meaning of WrestleMania 31. Because to me, WrestleMania 31 brought together long-running threads that you can kind of build, you know, you could put those building blocks together yourself if you know how to interpret the stories and characters properly. Uh, that led to what I like to see as a Cuban missile crisis for WWE because you had this... Uh, this kind of uh, play for power from Paul Heyman, whose client was going in as WWE World Heavyweight Champion. The authority had attempted to regain that title earlier uh, earlier on in late 2014 with Seth sort of unsuccessfully trying to cash in Money in the Bank at Night of Champions. There were power plays at play. The authority were fighting a war on two fronts, one against Randy Orton, one against Sting, of course. Uh, and, you know, you had the up, so-called upstart Roman Reigns, but you also had threads culminating the stories for The Undertaker, for John Cena, and for Daniel Bryan, who, of course, kicks off WrestleMania 31's main card with the, uh, the, the ladder match for the WWE Intercontinental Championship. And a lot of people, you know, were upset about the fact that Daniel Bryan wasn't in the main event. And actually, I think that there's a lot of... WrestleMania 31 is a, is a quintessential example of a wrestling show that doesn't get the love that I think it deserves, precisely because wrestling fans get caught up on the least important parts 
of professional wrestling, which is you know what match someone was booked in or who was booked to win what. Uh, and actually, if you engage with the stories and the characters, there's a lot of subtext you can really stick your teeth into that make this a very rewarding pay-per-view to sit back and revisit. Daniel Bryan in that Intercontinental Ladder match to me, was about playing off of the running theme, actually, of his fight against the authority. Now, you'll remember that a large part of that fight against the authority was this idea that Daniel Bryan was a B-plus player, that he wasn't cut out to be one of the very best in WWE, let alone one of the very best of all time, that he was he was a B-plus. Uh, people kind of latched onto that, fans latched onto that, and, you know, to this day, I, I, I think fans sort of, forgot where the line between reality and fiction was, much to the credit of WWE, I have to say. But what you have in this ladder match, and Daniel Bryan's participation in it, and most importantly, his victory in it, is Daniel Bryan very much proving, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he was an A-plus player. Not because he was winning the WWE World Heavyweight Championship, which he had already done, of course, at WrestleMania 30 the year before, but because one year on, he had come back from uh, a kind of a layoff, an injury that seemed to very much prove everything that the authority had said about Daniel Bryan, that he wasn't cut out to be the man, that he wasn't cut out to be the top guy. It seemed for a year like the authority were right. Well, he comes back, WrestleMania 31, and yes, it's the Intercontinental Championship. Yes, it's a a ladder match that is, in real terms, a, a transparent replacement for Money in the Bank. And yes, people would have perhaps rather have seen him wrestling for the WWE World Heavyweight Championship. But nonetheless, in winning the Intercontinental title, Daniel Bryan, in this match, becomes a Grand Slam winner. He becomes a a career Grand Slam champion. And that proves that actually, especially doing that on the back of what seemed like, a well, what was at the time a career-threatening layoff, that proves that he was very much an A-plus player. So you can weave that back into his overarching narrative as a character. And of course, what, what then goes on even further to play into that is the fact that he once again gets injured as the Intercontinental Champion, and much like when he was the WWE World Heavyweight Champion, has to relinquish the championship after a short period of willy-won't-he be able to compete. History repeated itself almost a year to the month, a year to the day. Uh, and ultimately, you know, that that he seems to prove he was an A-plus player at WrestleMania 31 kind of gets denigrated by the fact that, once again, the authority are almost proven right after the fact when he has to relinquish the Intercontinental title. As for the match itself, you know, it's all right. It's as good a ladder match featuring, what is it, like six or seven guys, as you are likely to find. It's a bit bizarre watching it back now and seeing Cody as Stardust a few years out from before he would go on to almost single-handed with his friends change the industry. But nonetheless, you know, it's it's a it's a decent enough ladder match, but, but it's got an emotive victory. It kicks WrestleMania off the same way it concluded the preceding year, so there's a nice symmetry there, there's a nice long-running narrative there, and it's an emotive punch to get going. But really, the, the, the event itself properly gets going. Oh, and by the way, the ladder match itself, no longer than 15 minutes. Wikipedia lists it as 13, lists it as 13 minutes 47 seconds. And I mention that purposefully because match length is going to be something that I'm going to keep repeatedly visiting through the show because it's another reason why I think WrestleMania 31 is the greatest of all time. But the show, of course, it really kind of, kind of finds its footing with the second match of the main card, which is Randy Orton versus Seth Rollins one-on-one in a match that kind of culminated their rivalry from the back end of 2014, which saw Seth Rollins really kind of lead the the excommunication of Randy Orton from the authority until Randy Orton returns with a vengeance uh, and starts to wreak havoc. He sort of pertains to join the authority again and wreaks havoc from within. And it's important to understand that Randy Orton's confrontation with the authority is a confrontation they cannot afford when they're busy trying to combat the lingering influence of Sting. These are two men that time and again had undercut the authority's attempts to influence and fashion the product to allow them to recapture control of what is ostensibly the key to their kingdom in the WWE World Heavyweight Championship match. Uh, Sting, of course, responsible for the authority being ejected from power in the first place at Survivor Series the preceding year before Seth Rollins was able to, in the most Machiavellian, Peter Baelish kind of way, manipulate events to bring the authority back into power. Uh, And then they start pursuing an attempt to consolidate their, their, their now waned power, their diluted power from Survivor Series. This is, incidentally, you know, a lot of people were upset about the fact that the authority were brought back 
quote quote too soon and and that sort of thing and what was the point of survivor series well the point of survivor series wasn't necessarily to you know narratively speaking about the fiction it wasn't to you know bring an end to the authority it was about weakening the authority's power at a point where they couldn't afford to have their power weakened they had been in complete control of wwe for almost for over a year to that point and their loss at survivor series was a devastating blow to their power to their source of power and then between survivor series and well between tlc and and wrestlemania is about them trying to regain control regain the control they'd lost because of stink and randy orton opening up what was essentially a second front for the authority to fight on was something they could ill afford particularly because it it sort of you know it waylaid their best weapon at this point almost their only weapon at this point in seth rollins so this was in many ways a must-win match for Seth Rollins because if he lost here, then that put Triple H in a corner in his match with Sting because if both men lost, then the authority would, were well and truly done for. Of course, we know Seth Rollins does lose. The match itself is like velvet. I mean, you just watch it and it is so smooth. And the frightening thing is, when you go back and you watch this, and you watch particularly Rollins as he was then, you start to realise that as good as he was in 2015, he's gotten better and better and better. And it brought to mind something that Paul Heyman said. It might have been around this very point, actually. It might have been on Podcast Row that year or something. He, he talked about how Seth Rollins is a guy, as good as he is this year, he'll be better next year. And next year, he'll be better the year after that, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think that's that's very much proven when you go back and revisit a velvet-like match, uh, you know, purely competitive. It's that Christian Chris Jericho match of the card, uh, and I think every WrestleMania card benefits from that. Again, a running theme of this WrestleMania is is almost every match offers up something slightly different, offers up a different style of story in the ring. And this one is the this one is almost the purest wrestling match. It's it's old school. It's very kind of ruthless aggression in its style and it's just a pleasure to watch. And you get that iconic RKO at the end where Randy Orton proves his proves his his fangs are still very much intact. And his victory here it, like I say, puts Triple H in a difficult position and puts the authority in a difficult position because all of a sudden they're now faced with the fact that they have no, seemingly no presence in the main event. Of course, we know that history would turn out otherwise, uh, but they have no presence in the main event. They've now lost one front. They've lost control of one front in this, this ongoing war of control, which meant that Triple H found himself in what was an absolute must-win situation in his match with Sting. That match, of course, then followed suit. Oh, by the way, Seth Rollins and Randy Orton, 13 minutes long again. So, again, a match no longer than 15 minutes. It's given absolutely ample time to be able to do its thing and tear the house down and and prove itself massively effective. I always forget, actually, that there's a couple of very dramatic false finishes in there that usually would have me kind of rolling my eyes. But, hey, I'm a Seth Rollins guy, so free pass, right? Anyway, 15 minutes again, so then the show's at this point is rolling along at a nice pace. We've only had two matches on the main card, though I would advise checking out the, at least the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal from the kickoff show before you start jumping into the main card anyway, because it does add something very, very good to the show. And we're two matches in, but it feels like we've been here for about an hour. But you know what? It doesn't matter because it's a great, great show up to this point. And then, of course, the controversial match of the night happens in Triple H versus Sting. A lot of people very upset that Triple H wins this match. A lot of people kind of didn't really get the fact that they were seemingly playing on the idea of Sting being from WCW. There were further complaints when when WCW fans were pointing out that Sting and the NWO were enemies and not allies. And so, again, everything kind of gets gets lost in people obsessing over the least important parts of the match. In keeping with the shorter run times of matches, this is the longest match on the card, but even at that, it lasts for only 18-odd minutes. doesn't feel like 18 minutes either when you watch it. And in keeping with the idea of every match offering up something different, this does exactly that. Again, it offers up shenanigans. This is a match that knew it had to take shortcuts, and it takes shortcuts, and it takes them in such a brazen fashion that essentially what this becomes is a guilty pleasure. But don't look past the fact that... Yes, all right. It's it's kind of it hides behind the idea of DX and the NWO, and you could almost laugh off the fact that it's a bunch of old guys playing wrestling. 
But don't look past the fiction in play here. Like I said, this was a two-war front for the authority. And because Seth Rollins loses to Randy Orton, Triple H has to beat Sting. Because otherwise, the authority are already who are already on the back foot suddenly face a situation in which they have no viable power source left. Any kind of ability to project power to the people is lost. Because they've lost the two biggest matches of their night. Luckily, Triple H does turn out the victor, luckily, for the authority. But I love the drama in the match. Yes, it's kind of cheesy when Sting breaks the sledgehammer in two with the baseball bat, especially because it's a clear, a clean cylindrical break. It's not like a splintered break, which might have looked even more dramatic. But they, they, the fact that they indulge into the sort of cinematics presentation is tremendous. Sting kind of comes out, you know, the, the, his WWE theme is fantastic. Drums, guitar, coat billowing behind him, baseball bat in hand, the kind of the Japanese percussion uh, live on stage, lending a sense of, a, of, of Ronin to the man. He was booked as the vigilante, a man trying his best to undermine the authority because, and he very much is a Ronin. The whole point of playing on WCW presents Sting as a soldier without a state to fight for, a warrior without a cause left anymore. And so he finds his own cause, and that cause is to topple the authority, topple this regime that he considers to be a blight on the world of wrestling as it was left after his home state fell to the might of this foreign invader to him. And so he comes striding into WrestleMania, very much like a Ronin striding into a throne room of his enemy, baseball bat like a katana in hand, ready to slay the king. Of course, we know that would happen some years later. But nonetheless, it's a dramatic entrance for Sting. The Terminator thing with Triple H, well, it's kind of cheesy. It doesn't really quite work very well, particularly because it's an open-air stadium in the middle of the day. Had it been at night, it might have had a little bit more drama about it, but it doesn't quite work. Nonetheless, the symbolism is important, which is this idea of Triple H very much targeting, honing in on, and, and focusing all of his efforts on Sting and eliminating Sting and being able to wipe out this repeated insurgency into his regime. They've lost on one front. They cannot afford to lose this guerrilla war. And that's, of course, what it very much turns out to be like. If Sting is walking into the throne room of the King of Kings, then when the NWO and DX start turning up, you've got riots on the streets of the kingdom, right? And that's what's great about all of this. And yes, Sting was kind of, you know, Sting was was enemies with the NWO in WCW. But don't forget, Sting here is, like I said, a soldier without a state, which makes the NWO soldiers without their state as well. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend, lest we forget. So I think it makes absolute sense for the NWO and Sting to come together, not because they're fighting for WCW, but because WCW is dead and they have no cause left. They have nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. This is their purpose in a life robbed of purpose. This is their new purpose. And so I really like the symbolism. I really love the subtext. I love the cinematic drama of this match. I love the fact it leans into the indulgences of it. I love the fact that Triple H does win. And then people, of course, criticize as well. And by the way, Triple H has to win here because that puts the authority in a position where they can then strike out from a place of strength in the main event by sending Rollins out with the Money in the Bank briefcase. They've consolidated one border at least, which means they have a source of power, a base of power again, and they can make moves to, once again, through almost black ops maneuvers, recapture the key to the kingdom that they desperately need in order to really bolster their strength. So Triple H had to win in order for the authority to maintain a sense of menace and threat in the wider universe of WWE coming out of WrestleMania 31. I thought it was not only a brilliantly produced match, but actually a match that absolutely had the right victor. Why does Triple H shake Sting's hand after the fact? Because obviously he comes out later in the night and cuts a heelish promo. This is another thing that people latched onto to criticise. And again, sports entertainment is dead. Don't think of it in that way. Think of this in a way of performance art. What Triple H is doing is he's on his feet. He's got Sting and the NWO on one side. These soldiers without a state, fiercely capable, still in their old age. He's got DX on the other side and an, an, an army quite literally the DX army on his side, and he is faced with having won this battle, having won this fight, and having consolidated that 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 place of strength to strike out from. He's What he's facing is a civil war that could tear the very fabric of what is left of his kingdom apart at the seams. He has to quell that. 
He knows in that moment that uh, an, an all-out war with these stateless soldiers is bad. And so he does the only sensible thing which is to strike a temporary peace accord. He reaches out and shakes Sting's hand, not because he's suddenly friends with Sting, or because he has he has respect for Sting that he didn't have before. He does it because he's the cerebral assassin. And what he's doing is he is quelling a rebellion. And he's saying, okay, you've got a point. We'll, you know, he's making false promises. He's saying, we'll, we'll pull back a little bit on the on the on the dictatorial regime you know and and of course we know that he wouldn't go on and do that and Sting would again make his presence felt much later on in the year when it had become more than clear that the authority was still up to their old tricks but that time that Triple H buys is precious to the authority because it obviously allows them to again return to that place of power that they had in years prior to Sting's uh, sort of usurping them at Survivor Series 2014. So I love the the, the, the the threads that you can pull into this Sting versus Triple H match. And for what it's worth, the match itself is fun to watch. I mean, even if you don't agree with this interpretation of it and you very much refuse to watch this in any guise other than sports entertainment is dead, it's still a, a riotously fun affair if you kind of lean into it and just go with it. It's one of those so bad it's good things. And I, I really like it. I really get a kick out of it. And I, like I say, I really love in indulging and leaning into the subtext, the cinematic and fictional subtext of what the match means in relation to everything else going on around it. I think it's I think it's great, and I think Sting has a great showing, uh, and, and Triple H has a great showing, and the NWODX stuff is, is well thought out, and yeah, great stuff. And again, 18 minutes long. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It's not like the WrestleManias that have followed where, you know, a match three hours into the show feels some bizarre need to be 30 minutes long just because it's got Shane McMahon in or some nonsense. But this is where card design comes in, because we've had three matches, each around 15 to 20 minutes long, you know, perfectly judged in that regard. Nothing outstaying, it's welcome, it's breezy, it's fast-paced, it's got a lot of energy about it, things are moving along, ticking along nicely. And then what you get is this span of time that basically acts to me like a like a uh, an intermission like a halftime show, like, you know, you get the halftime at Super Bowl, because you have the musical performance, and then you have a, a Divas tag team match between AJ Lee and Page on one hand, and the Bella Twins on the other hand, and then you have uh, the Hall of Fame parade, let's call it, uh, and it just, uh, t- collectively, those three items sort of make up a nice kind of intermission in, in the main show, and I think that that works really nicely. The placement of these three things is, I think, very well thought out, perfectly judged again and the Divas tag match it's only about seven minutes long these days people would probably be upset about that but there's you know a match being seven minutes long is not in and of itself an act of judgment from the company and actually I wish we had more matches that were seven minutes long and the match itself again tells a decent story it plays on the friendship struck up between Paige and AJ Lee through their feud of the preceding year it strikes up on the Bella Twins sort of beginning their really kind of it's consolidating their own power essentially over the Divas division that would come to play a big role in the women's revolution later on that very year and it's you know up to this point it's probably the strongest Divas Divas match, uh, the strongest women's match at WrestleMania since Trish and uh, Mickey at 22. And when you watch it back, it's striking not only how far they'd come from the year before, but how much further we've come ever since. Really puts that into perspective. So there's historical value to this WrestleMania as well in that regard. But like I say, you know, absolutely. um, Would we rather not have musical performances at WrestleMania as well? Maybe not, you know, and, and maybe that's something that makes people want to put a WrestleMania 17 or a WrestleMania 19, which does have a musical performance of sorts in it, by the way, um, over WrestleMania 31. But it's about recognizing how the design of WrestleMania has changed. This is something that we have to have now at WrestleManias because it's something Vince wants to do at WrestleManias. And as musical performances go, I think this is probably the best version because it's the least intrusive in the sense that you have it as the first act of, like I say, this three-act halftime show that breaks the WrestleMania up nicely. You know, it gives you an opportunity to go make your cup of tea or grab some food or whatever, or just have a, have a chat. You know, sort of sort of recover and regroup in time for the second half of the show. I just really love the role that it plays in the event. And what's more is, you know, WrestleMania has become... 
since the the move to these massive stadiums and these open air stadiums, you know, seventy thousand, eighty thousand fans in there, it's the Super Bowl of wrestling. I think doesn't really fit anymore. It's more the Glastonbury of wrestling, you know. Especially when you think about WrestleMania week, you think about Takeover, you think about the Hall of Fame, you think about everything that goes on on a WrestleMania week. You know, they treat Raw and SmackDown after WrestleMania as part of that experience. It's really, you know, more than just one day now. It's really more than just one event. It's 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 a festival. It's a wrestling festival. And I have no issue really with, with musical performances being a part of that when they're used in a clever way. And I think that this one is used in a clever way at WrestleMania 31. You start with that, you get a nice little sort of simple tag team match uh, to make sure the focus stays on wrestling. And then, of course, you get the Hall of Fame parade afterwards. And like I said, nice halfway point in the in the card uh, in a well-designed card uh, and yeah I've I've no issue with it I think it's it's it adds something to the event and it adds a sense of event to the event capital E literally okay well speaking of of the halfway mark of course this brings us to the halfway mark of the show so I'm going to take us to a little advert break and when we come back I'll mention a couple of other loose thoughts and then we'll jump into the final three matches on this remarkable to my mind WrestleMania, the greatest of all time, WrestleMania 31. Stick with me, folks. Okay, welcome back to the show. Thanks for staying with me. We are, of course, talking about how I believe WrestleMania 31 is the greatest of all time. I hope so far I've demonstrated that whether it's a case of a best-of-all-time example of a specific genre, in this case the, the Andre the Giant Memorial Battle Royal, uh, or whether it's it's matches complementing one another by offering something different, or matches playing into wider character arcs or wider shared universe, I hope I've demonstrated so far why everything at WrestleMania 31's first from its first half uh, really plays. Uh, you know, it, it. What's the phrase I'm looking for here? It feels like it means something. Everything feels like it has consequence. Everything feels important, uh, and everything is played out well. The matches are of a good quality. There's plenty of PA kind of subtext there. If you look at this as sports entertainment, there's no wonder you're going to think very little of it. But as performance art, it's absolutely one of the best ever. It, everything complements each other in a way that WrestleMania 17, 19, 3 can only hope to. You know, everything feeds into everything else, it feels like. And whether that's, you know, narrative arcs. And I encourage you to find the old column out. Go to my archive on lordsofpain.net. Find my alternative road to WrestleMania 31 column. Read up how I brought together narrative arcs and character arcs that led all the way back, dated all the way back to 2007, leading up to this show. This was a show that I felt should have been the show where WWE moved on from the past and, and, and fully embraced its future because it felt perfectly poised to do that. You know, because one of the other great things about the card design is the way that, yes, you have vets on there and part-timers, but mostly they're paired up against new upcomers. Randy Orton wrestles Seth Rollins. Uh, the Undertaker wrestles Bray Wyatt. Brock Lesnar wrestles Roman Reigns. The only all-full part-timer match on there is Triple H and Sting, and that kind of plays itself in a manner that, that adds a kind of indulgent affair to the match. It seems to be very much aware of its own place on the card in a very in a very obvious way, in a very kind of uh, obvious is the wrong word, in a in a in a very self conscious way, in a positive way. A positively self conscious way is the phrase that I'm stumbling into. And that's why I think it works so so well. And that theme continues as you come back from that kind of makeshift halftime show in the United States Championship match. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. What a shame it is to see how Rusev has gone from being in a WrestleMania match as a viable threat to John Cena for the US title to what he is today, which is literally a joke. I mean, I, I'm not using that metaphorically. Like, Rusev Day is played for laughs. It is, he is literally a joke. And that's a shame, I think, because it, it's a stark reminder watching his match with John Cena here, how imposing a menace he was at this point in time. He'd been undefeated for pretty much a year. He was United States champion. He was doing the whole, you know, Vladimir Putin's chosen soldier. And in terms of the, that running theme of every match adding something a little bit different, I think what you have in John Cena versus Rusev, not only is, is, is of course, what would come to be the defining kind of match for the US Open, though I dare say that this is slightly more cerebral than most of those, but you have what feels to me like it's got that that modern more is more vibe to it. You know, it's kind of a bit spotty and a bit hyperactive. But just the tone of the you know the battle of nations and the style of character that Rusev was, and I remember very specifically the training videos that were on WWE's YouTube account leading up to this particular event and the VT before the match itself. 
and all of that kind of thing gives it a sense of gladiatorial atmosphere. And I feel like this is kind of the Roman gladiators type match of the evening. You know, it's a bit like Rollins versus Orton in that it's a much purer wrestling match, but it's a different vibe to Rollins versus Orton. It's much more singular than Rollins versus Orton. It isn't playing into any other battles that are going on on the on the in the wider shared universe of WWE at the time. You know, if John Cena wins, it means very little to the authority at this point, though it does embolden one of their primary adversaries, and of course Rusev has a history of working alongside the authority. So I guess ultimately you can kind of weave it into that Cuban Missile Crisis that I referred to earlier on is, you know, the authority and kind of Paul Heyman's control come to a standoff with Roman Reigns in the middle of it. But nonetheless, you get, like I say, that sense of that gladiatorial atmosphere. And of course, that's furthered by the fact that Rusev comes in on a tank. Like, how cool is that? You know, the psychological games being played ahead of time. And you get kind of the imperious tone that you often find Russia is presented with in popular culture, Western popular culture in particular. And then, of course, you get that kind of jingoistic fervor that often America is presented with in, in popular culture as well. So there is a very nationalistic, international sense of warfare about this. And maybe that's why I feel it has that gladiatorial atmosphere to it. I think it's the match itself is 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 fine. You know, it's by no means the best match on the night. I think it's it's pretty forgettable. But even in comparison to a lot of the other U.S. Open matches, and that's you know something that that I don't say with any ease because I don't like most of those U.S. Open matches, and I would much rather watch this gladiatorial affair instead. Again, it's 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 no longer than 15 minutes. In fact, Wikipedia lists it as 14 minutes 31 seconds. So, as is the running theme with this card, it doesn't overstay its welcome, and it keeps the the event moving at a nice, decent pace. They make the most out of those 15 minutes. It's a, it's a fun match, and you know the Lana thing's a bit weird in retrospect, and and kind of feels like it's been repeated several times since. Um, and again, you get John Cena paired with Rusev, so you get an upcoming talent paired with a veteran in order to benefit from that. Unfortunately, you know, the writing was on the wall at the time. I should have recognized it. Yes, you get these pairings, but John Cena beats Rusev, Randy Orton beats Seth Rollins, and of course, The Undertaker beats Bray Wyatt as well. But nonetheless, you know, it was a positive sign in the card design, and the card itself benefits from that design being implemented. Before we move on to The Undertaker versus Bray Wyatt, which is one of my favourite Undertaker matches ever, particularly at WrestleMania, I want to first of all take a, a moment to compliment WrestleMania 31's production design. This was a WrestleMania that kind of came when the network was, was a year old and it had finally found its footing and that was very much played upon in the production design and the 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 the, the VT that bizarrely had LL Cool J in it before the event, but is nonetheless dramatic and, and well executed and really gets you amped up. Uh, but the the simplistic set design as well. I think sometimes WrestleMania has a tendency to get quite gaudy. You know, the whether it's the the giant theme park of WrestleMania 33 or the massive face mask of 34, or you know, I mean the 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 bloody Statue of Liberty and and whatnot from. WrestleMania 29 is a particular example. And WrestleMania 31 returns to 28 simple design of a, of a sleek-looking stage. I love the red and black colour scheme, which is very striking. There's a very robust design to the to the ring canopy. The stadium that they're in that year is a, is a, a, a nice-looking stadium. The open-air atmosphere, which I'll talk about when I, you know, when I come to the main event here, and the fact that it's daylight for most of the event... Is great as well, uh, and and it's just you know and and that open air atmosphere and the fact that it's daylight for most of the the show adds to that festival atmosphere I was talking about with that halfway point. So even the set design with WrestleMania 31, I think is 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 excellent, absolutely excellent. My friend Ash described this as a perfect storm uh, when we were watching it the other day of of all the different facets of WWE's event design coming together, and I think he was absolutely spot on. Whether it's card design, match length, match quality. You know, story and narrative progression, character arcs, uh, production design, you know, you name it, I think everything's on point. The semi-main event of the night was The Undertaker versus Bray Wyatt. Like I say, one of my favourite matches. Fatal Attraction is how I would describe the relationship between Bray Wyatt and The Undertaker. And it bothers me to death that this hasn't been made more of a thing because Bray Wyatt had the potential to have the most intriguing relationship to The Undertaker we'd seen since Mankind debuted in 1996. He has this weird obsession with The Undertaker, almost a fetish 
for The Undertaker. And this is a, an absolute performance art masterpiece. Again, sports entertainment is dead. And a lot of people who watch this as a sports entertainment match are disappointed because it's slower paced. It's a lot less frenetic than a lot of The Undertaker's preceding street matches. But watch carefully the body language in particular. First of all, the build-up to this saw Bray Wyatt trying to tempt The Undertaker. trying to Bray Wyatt, by the way, the, the manifestation of an individual's most powerful insecurity and fear comes into a character's life when they are at the most vulnerable. The Undertaker is now a year on from when his streak when his streak was broken and is therefore at his most vulnerable, so of course Bray Wyatt appears in his life, almost tempting him back into life from beyond the grave. And he does this for weeks and weeks and weeks, and when The Undertaker finally responds by setting Bray Wyatt's chair alight, Bray Wyatt laughs giddily, like a man stood on a cliff edge, raging against the storm that rages in return. Bray Wyatt is a manic obsessive. He has this fatal attraction to The Undertaker. He's almost stalking The Undertaker. And that plays out... On the night itself, he comes out and he has scarecrows that he brings to life with him, and that's important because when the Undertaker comes out, it shows how. Well, I'll I'll say that in a second. He the scarecrows walk with him down to the ring. He's occupied. He's going to be the new face of fear. He's screaming into the air, pacing up and down. He is animated. He's excited for what's about to happen. And then the gong hits. And The Undertaker emerges, and the purple lights drench the arena, and there are urns burning atop simple cylindrical, uh, not cylindrical, cuboid plinths. The Undertaker emerges almost literally monolithic, resurrected from beyond the grave, as Bray Wyatt had called for him to be. And watch Bray Wyatt's body language, because suddenly those scarecrows look like meager magic tricks compared to the full brunt of The Undertaker's ethereal force. And as he walks to the ring, Bray Wyatt goes from pacing excitedly to frozen, wide-eyed, as he finally meets the tangible reality of what The Undertaker is, rather than the idea of The Undertaker he'd fallen in love with. They say, don't meet your heroes, Bray Wyatt meets his here. And suddenly, when The Undertaker stood facing him, stony-faced, bulked up, short hair, old man taker in grizzled glory, Bray Wyatt goes from being excited to being nervous. Suddenly he starts to melt away. He starts to panic. He starts barking at The Undertaker that he won't let The Undertaker take this away from him. This is his time. And then as the match progresses, two things happen. Bray Wyatt gets a taste of The Undertaker's true power and finds himself wanting. And in return, The Undertaker, when he tastes Bray Wyatt's retaliation, you see him... It's like a cadaver slowly coming back to life as the spirit that, that infests the Undertaker's body begins to get used to the idea of being animated again. You see him, you know, his joints are stiff and he's kind of cricking his neck and rolling his shoulders and there's a few moments where he gets knocked down and he slowly, you can almost hear the creak of his bones as he rises back up and his eyes are locked on Bray Wyatt as he does it. There are so many subtle little moments in this match through the expression of body language that demonstrate this idea of not only The Undertaker's slow, grinding resurrection back to a place of power because Bray Wyatt called him out, because of the manifestation of his fears confronts him in this match, but you also get this idea of Bray Wyatt going from loving The, the Undertaker to fearing The Undertaker. And, he, and that fear is, is obsessive still. Right through to the moment where he's doing his spider crawl, his exorcist-like spider crawl, and The Undertaker sits up, and just that wonderful moment where Bray slowly melts back down to the ground again in sheer fear. This is one of my favourite Undertaker matches because it indulges in the ethereal, fantastical qualities of, of The Undertaker's character and of Bray Wyatt's character, but never quite in the... You know, ridiculously theatrical way that Kane and The Undertaker might have done. Instead, it's much more character-driven. Not quite as subtle as the Mankind stuff, but still subtle enough for me to really enjoy it. You know, Bray Wyatt is afforded a respectful performance. He kicks out. If you're a fan of, of he kicks out of the Tombstone, and if you're a fan of cerebral pro wrestling, then this should absolutely be up your street. This is a. I think the reason why I love this match so much is not just because it's a performance art masterpiece, because of those demonstrations of body language and underlying narrative that I talked about there, but also because. It's like a new gen match. This is exactly the kind of a match I could imagine The Undertaker wrestling at, say, a res an alternative WrestleMania 13 or an alternative WrestleMania 12 even. And I love it for that. It's cerebral, character-driven, story-driven. I much prefer this match to the Tetralogy matches that we'll be exploring next... Uh, well, not next week, but in a couple of weeks. And even the CM Punk match, which is a performance art masterpiece in its own right, incidentally. Um, but there's a lot to really sink your teeth into. If you accept that sports entertainment is dead and you indulge with the character development and the narrative of this, 
It's spectacular. I absolutely love it. And of course, The Undertaker manages to emerge the victor and he re-solidifies his existence, which again plays into a wider shared universe when he manages to, much like the authority, strike out from a place of resurrected strength later in the year uh, when he attacks Brock Lesnar at Battleground, then at SummerSlam and then at Hell in a Cell. And of course, you get the, the a revisit of this, this fatal attraction of Bray Wyatt's later in the year at Survivor Series as well. Bray Wyatt's obsession, I believe, probably still lives to this day. And actually, I wouldn't mind. The one Undertaker match that I would accept would be him versus Bray Wyatt with Bray Wyatt finally getting the victory over him. I feel like it was a mistake for Bray Wyatt not to beat The Undertaker at Survivor Series. I can accept him beating the Bray Wyatt here. This is another match where people obsess too much over the idea that, well, how could Bray Wyatt be the face of fear if he lost? Be- and that prevented them from really getting to grips with the character presentation, the narrative, the subtext, the body language that I've talked about. And everything in between, um, you know, Bray Wyatt calling himself the face of fear after this is is indicative of his denial over the fact that his hero was far more than he ever anticipated, and this experience almost left him shell shocked in a way he hadn't anticipated. The whole match, the way the match plays out, is a testament to Bray Wyatt's hubris in calling the Undertaker out in the first place, and just why his attraction is indeed fatal. Um, but I do think Bray Wyatt should have then won at Survivor Series, and that should have been the last we saw of The Undertaker, but that's a whole other podcast for a whole other day. Okay, then you get the whole segment with The Rock and The Authority, Triple H coming out and showing his true colours, revealing that rather than, you know, again, sports entertainment would have you think that it's a contradictory presentation of character, performance art demonstrates that actually his shaky cans with Sting was just a power play and, a, and an insincere one at that because he's out in the ring later that night. Again, back to his old tricks with Stephanie, The Rock comes out and you get the whole power play between The Authority and, and The People's Champion. Not quite enough to damage the, the the solid power base that Triple H was able to achieve in his victory over Sting because it had very little impact the next night and, and again moving forward. But it was enough, of course, to, to lay the foundations for uh, something that would come to basically destroy the remnants, the, the burned down remnants of the authority many years later thanks to the Ronda Rousey stuff. And from a sports entertainment perspective, it's a nice little reprieve that sets, you know, gives you a bit of a break right before the main event. And the fact you almost get this kind of unrelated prologue to the main event makes the main event feel all the more special. By the way, again, Undertaker versus Bray Wyatt, 15 minutes long, doesn't overstate welcome, offers up a more cerebral match and character-driven match, fantastical match to anything else on the card. So again, something different. These running themes continue through. Then you get the main event. <clears throat> and to my two... To this day, I maintain this is one of, if not frankly, the best show-closing match at a WrestleMania ever. Maybe not the best, but certainly one of the best. And I fear that uh, that that rematches between Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar in later years are going to have people thinking less of this one. This is a masterpiece in every which way. Whether it's sports entertainment or performance art you're coming it from, it's a masterpiece. Everything was precisely judged. The crowd were into it. It was Suplex City before Suplex City became mundane, and I don't think it's fair to say that because we've seen so much of it since, that that means that this is a weaker match for it. Because this was at the point at which Suplex City still meant something and was still effective. I've I've almost run out of time to be able to give this match its due, so actually I may revisit it a little bit next week, I think. But what I'll say this week, whether I do or do that, do or do, don't do that next week, you know, is something I'll have to think about. But um, for the time being, I think it's it's a brilliantly worked match. Uh, you know, the, it's it's a testament to what a bit of blood can add in terms of drama, because when Brock Lesnar begins to bleed, the drama just gets ratcheted up 50 million percent. There's the whole idea of, you know, and that plays into what Roman Reigns said heading into the into the event, which is, I don't care what anyone says, Brock Lesnar's human and he can bleed, and, and it, the fact that Brock Lesnar bleeding is what gives Roman almost his in to victory uh, is fantastic. I used to think that Roman Reigns laughing was a sign of them attempting to make him look like a badass hero, and actually what strikes me when you revisit it is the, the, the language they use to present Roman Reigns. They call him the upstart. And it's almost like we missed the fact they leaned into at the time the fact that people thought that this was too soon for Reigns to be in this spot. They leaned into that. You know, the whole right person in the in the right spot at the wrong time thing. People, again, conflate it because of sports entertainment thinking and, and think of that as WWE's apologist way of presenting this match. And actually, it plays into this idea that Roman Reigns is an upstart. That he is absolutely in a position that he shouldn't be in. That it is too soon for him. Even though it is a spot he's destined to have. And that idea of him being an upstart feeds into the fact that he is kind of this X factor that is upsetting the balance of power 
between the superpowers of Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar on one hand and the authority on the other hand. And he's almost what's going to set, he's the spark that's going to set the powder keg of this Cuban Missile Crisis off almost entirely. The, this kind of butterfly effect that the authority and Paul Heyman couldn't plan for. He's a threat to Lesnar he, if, if, because if he wins, then, then Heyman is robbed of that power of the world title. He's a threat to the authority because if he wins the world title, he's he's emboldened and empowered as an insurgent to them uh, and and just replaces what they've managed to put down with Sting in the NWO. So there's a lot of political subtext here for WWE's shared universe. There's a lot of character subtext as well. Of course, this is this is a the the kind of the first real test of war for Roman Reigns on his quest to become WWE World Heavyweight Champion that would culminate later that year. And see him going to Royal Rumble, defending that championship the next year as a as a as a war veteran rather than as an upstart. This is the beginning of a journey for him, rather than anything else. And it's a compelling one. Like I say, the match is is tremendously intelligently put together, very effectively worked. The crowd are very much into it. There's I mentioned earlier the the atmosphere lent by the open air stadium in daylight. What what is so brilliant is that as this main event, you know, as the guys come out. Make their entrances. The introductions are made, and as the match begins to progress, you you physically see the daylight turn into nighttime, and it just adds this kind of this dramatic X factor to things that you just this dramatic intangible to things. This shifting daylight into nighttime lends a, a sense of drama to proceedings that's almost again cinematic um, that you couldn't have possibly well maybe you could have planned for to some degree, but you couldn't have done any any at any point else. And again, that just complements what is a, a phenomenal main event. And then Brock Lesnar bleeds, and the match gets ratcheted up, and Roman Reigns he hits a Superman punch and a second one and a third one and a spear, and Brock kicks out and he goes for another. Spear and Brock counters into the F5, and then you get the Piesta resistance. The authority strike out from their place of consolidated power. Seth Rollins runs out. Black Ops mission behind enemy lines cashes in money in the bank to obviously capitalize on a situation. You get a historical value here because this is the first time a Money in the Bank contract is cashed in at WrestleMania so far, the only time. You also get the fact that it's the first and so far only time that a Money in the Bank contract is cashed in mid-match. So again, you've got singular historical value there. It breaks ground as well in that sense, does this WrestleMania. It creates uh, one of the most organically memorable WrestleMania moments of recent years. The heist of the century is a great line that Michael Cole comes out with on commentary. The commentary, very much on point during that climactic moment, feels natural, doesn't feel overproduced, feels instinctive and organic again. It's a hugely dramatic moment for me, offered me the moment of being able to see my favourite all-time wrestler win his first World Championship, which is something that I never got to to witness with Bret Hart, whose career I fell in love with largely in retrospect, or at least from a, from a distance. There's so much going on here, and it's, again, it's 15 minutes long. Well, it's 16 minutes and 43, according to, to Wikipedia, so it doesn't overstay its welcome. The length feels perfectly judged. You know, the, the aesthetic of the match is brutal, but not in that kind of wince-inducing, maybe they're going a bit too far kind of way. It's, it's again, perfectly judged. It's surgically executed in every way is this main event, and it just culminates this breezy, energetic, well-judged, well-balanced show in perfect, historical, memorable fashion that throws in a, a, a plot twist that many people probably might have guessed might have come, but you could never have guaranteed would happen uh, I just so much going on in it as a main event. It's it's just everything you should want from a WrestleMania main event match. To me, is this is this match between Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns, and you can even forgive the fact that it wasn't Daniel Bryan in retrospect because, like I say, that idea of Roman being an upstart recontextualizes Paul Heyman's line of right guy, right place, wrong time. Not because people wanted someone else. Not because sports entertainment tells you that it was too soon for him to be in that spot, in air quotes. But because of the idea of his character being an upstart, being an overachiever, of being someone who is who has been able to do more than... It's like Rob Stark... Roman Reigns here is Rob Stark in Game of Thrones. No one expected the young wolf to be able to defeat Tywin Lannister in the field every single time the two generals' forces met with one another in the War of the Five Kings, but Rob Stark won every battle that he fought, which is something people didn't expect. Suddenly, Roman Reigns is that 
young upstart. He is the young wolf. He is the big dog, of course. Uh, and he is he is an overachiever. He's the right guy in the right place at the wrong time. Not because sports entertainment, entertainment tells you that he was pushed too soon, but because performance art tells you that he is uh, a rebel, that he is a rebel without cause, that he is an X-factor, a spark that threatens to ignite the powder keg that is this Cuban missile crisis as two superpowers vie for control over the WWE World Heavyweight Championship that provides the keys to WWE's fictional kingdom and that gets stolen from underneath the noses of one superpower and of this upstar by the Black Ops counterinsurgency of Seth Rollins and his Money in the Bank contract. I love this show! I love it. It's fantastic. So yes, it may not, you know, it may not have the 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 frenetic energy of WrestleMania 17 or the icon iconic cast of characters that WrestleMania 19 has. It may not have the 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 historical infamy of WrestleMania 3. It may not even have Once in a Lifetime or Miracle on Bourbon Street, but WrestleMania 31, quietly to me, is the most mature, accomplished WrestleMania we've ever seen. From a performance art perspective, it is a masterpiece in every single instance. Every single match presents something different. From sports entertainment perspective, alright, some of the decision making may be a bit distracting, but if you look at card design, if you look at match quality, everything has benefits. Everything has a unique selling point. You might be encouraged to, to compare it to other matches that pale in comparison, but it's it. WrestleMania 31 boasts a consistency that not even WrestleMania 17 can match. I feel like sometimes people with WrestleMania 17 in particular act like apologists for the weak points of its card. Uh, and in fact, you know, if we're being blunt about it, WrestleMania 17 has weak points. WrestleMania 30 has weak points. WrestleMania 19, which historically was my favorite of all time before 31, has weak points. WrestleMania 31 is consistently solid across the board. It knows what it wants. It gets on with executing its vision, and it executes its vision far better than a lot of people give it credit for. It's got match quality. It's got something for everyone. The production design is is beautifully simplistic and restrained. I just love it in every which way. I, no one's going to convince me at any point soon that it's not the greatest WrestleMania of all time. And even if you don't agree it's the not the greatest of all time, perhaps you can at least agree that it's the last great WrestleMania that we had. Because it's certainly light years ahead of 32, 33 and 34. And I, to me, it means a hell of a lot to me as a show for various reasons. And I think it stands the test of time. I encourage you to go back now and revisit it, bearing in mind the, the the narrative interpretations and character interpretations that I've offered for you. Seek out my column. In fact, I may go repost it. I'm not sure yet. Seek out my column in the Just Business Archive and LordsofPay.net alternative. I can't remember what it's called specifically, but it's something like the alternative road to an alternative interpretation on the road to WrestleMania 31, because you will find that there are character arcs in play that date all the way back to 2007 here in a beautifully interwoven fictional universe that comes to a head in, to my mind, the greatest WrestleMania of all time. So with that being said, I would love to hear your thoughts, especially if you do get a chance to go back and revisit this show at some point with what I've said in mind. If you want to share your thoughts with me on anything I've discussed on this podcast or about the design of this podcast in general, because I do want to keep getting better at this and I can only do that with your critical feedback, do please get in contact. You can do it in a whole variety of ways. The best way is on Twitter. You can reach me at LLP Plan, but you can also find me on Facebook. Look up Samuel Plan. You can hit me up with a comment on any of my posts, be it a column or a podcast post on lordsofpain.net. Just drop a comment on any of those and I'll be sure to respond. Uh, you can find me on LOP forums. Go sign up. Become a part of the best wrestling community on the internet. And hell, if you've ever thought about writing a column, because I get column-like feedback every single week, and you absolutely, if you're someone who leaves lengthy feedback, should think about writing your own wrestling columns. It's free to sign up. There's no subscription or anything like that. And you get creative freedom that you won't find anywhere else as a writer on the internet in the IWC, because you're just given free reign to do what you want, to build your own brand and to write your own columns. Sign up to LOP Columns Forum right now and be a part of tournaments as well. We have regular writing tournaments right now. It's King of the Columnist 7. You can go check out all the great columns being posted in the Columns Forum for that tournament. The Doc has reposted some on the main page as well. So if you haven't been checking that out, check that out too. And you could be a part of the next tournament that comes along. As and whenever that may be, I'm not sure. 
But just keep your eyes peeled and sign up to be a part of that. They're hella fun. I've reached the semi-finals of King the Columnist 7 and I hope to continue on. Also, of course, you can, by all means, check out all the other great podcasts here on Lords of Pain Radio that I plugged earlier in the show. They are on demand to listen to on lordsofpain.net or through Blog Talk Radio or through, I imagine, your general podcast provider. I know you could certainly download them from iTunes, for example. Also, while I'm here, you still have time, folks, to go and get your nominations in for the 2019 LOP class uh, for the Hall of Fame, for the LOP Hall of Fame. It's just a nomination process for the time being. There's a Google form linked to in the post, stick it at the top of lordsofpain.net. Go and get your nominations in. Shortly, we will be announcing a shortlist for you to vote on. And then that'll be that voting period will be open for a week, and then we will be doing the induction ceremonies for those who win the most votes. Various categories for you to nominate potential contenders for the shortlists for, and you've only got about a day left to go and get those nominations in. So go get them in now, folks, and be a part of the LOP Hall of Fame. That about does it for me. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I only watched WrestleMania 31 last weekend, but hell, I'm fancying going and watching it all over again after doing this show. I love that pay-per-view. I think it's the best WrestleMania of all time, and certainly the last great WrestleMania, if not the greatest of all time. And yeah, I just love it. So I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope I will see you next week, which will of course be the fast lane alternative pre-show as we rapidly hurtle along the road to WrestleMania 35. Here's hoping it will be as good as 31 was as well. So in the meantime, have a great week and I will see you this time next week. <laughs>